Before we begin, I'd like to make a quick plug for the Parsha podcast that I host every single week. This is the beginning of the new cycle, the new year. We just had Rosh Hashanah. We just finished the reading of the Torah that we do every year. And we started again from the beginning of Genesis. We jumped all the way back from the end of Deuteronomy, the end of Devarim, to the beginning of Genesis, to the beginning of Bereshis. And every week I research the entire Parsha and spend a long time on going through it all so that you don't need to. And you could just download the podcast, the Parsha podcast, put it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast uh, on your phone. And every week you'll have some day during the beginning of the week, either Sunday or Monday or Tuesday, there's going to be a new episode. So if you want to get a more intense, comprehensive study of the Torah week by week, Parsha by Parsha this year, that's a very good way to do it. That's the first thing I want to share before we begin. Uh, In addition, please God, in a month or two, we're going to be launching a new question and answer podcast. I had a great suggestion from a listener. He said, if it's a Jewish Q&A, call it Jew&A. So that's probably the name we're going to go with. If you have any questions on any topic whatsoever, it could be on matters of halacha, Jewish festivals, Jewish philosophy, Jewish rituals. Uh, Jewish history, whatever it may be, you can email me, RabbiWolby at gmail.com, and maybe it'll be included in a future episode. And as always, you can always email me with any questions or comments at RabbiWolby at gmail.com. In the 16th century, the city of Tzfat, or Safed, that city in northern Israel became host to one of the greatest collections of Torah sages ever assembled. This was a pivotal juncture in Jewish history, the nation was still suffering tremendously from the devastating effects of the expulsion from Spain and Portugal in the 1490s. And the Ottoman Empire, which was in its nascent years, it controlled the land of Israel at the time. It had very fair policies towards the Jews. And this location, the land of Israel, became a haven for many Jews who were dislodged from their homelands. But for some reason, the city of Tzfat, the city of Safed, became the home to a remarkable group of very transformative scholars, sages, Kabbalists, and the like. Uh, So some of the notable residents of the city is the Radbaz, Rabbi David ben Shlomo ibn Zimra, Rabbi Yaakov Rav, he was the one who tried to reestablish smicha. Rabbi Yosef Cairo, he's the author of the Shulchan Aruch, and he's known as the Bet Yosef, one of the most important figures in Jewish halacha history. Rabbi Shlomo Alkabitz, Rabbi Moshe Alshech, Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, known as the Ramak, Rabbi Chaim Vital. But none of them were as transformative or influential as Rabbi Yitzchak Luria, known the world over as the Ari, which means the line, which is an acronym for his name, uh, or the Arizal. He lived a very short life. Uh, He was born in 1534, and he passed away in 1572. But over the course of his life, he essentially reshaped the Jewish world with his explication and dissemination of Kabbalah and the shifts in attitude towards the study of Kabbalah that he spearheaded. And even after he passed, his influence seems to have grown and it continues to permeate the Jewish world until today. And he's going to be the subject of today's podcast. I want to make a quick disclaimer before we get into this individual and his story and his influence. Some of the things that we're going to learn about are so fantastic 
and so supernatural that they sound magical. They sound like fantasy. They sound definitely that like they're even they're they're embellished. But in general, I want to make a note that this individual and his supernatural abilities and powers and the general storylines of his life and the impact that he had, these facts were accepted by the vast majority of Jews in the centuries following his life. So that's the first point. Uh, but that said, there's definitely some aspects of his life and the stories of his life that were undoubtedly embellished by the hagiographical sources. But I think that in the context of a talk on Jewish history, even the stories that were embellished are historical, either because they happened, but even if they're nothing more than ghetto folklore, they're still relevant to the picture of history that they create because these stories became the prevailing belief for many Jewish communities over the centuries and, of course, until today. So who was Narizal? Where did he come from? And what is his stamp on Jewish history? We know very little about his youth. We know that he was born in Jerusalem to a prestigious Jewish family. And he had an interesting pedigree. His father was Ashkenazic, was from Europe, and his mother was Sephardic, which is somewhat unusual. But in a certain sense, the two worlds of Kabbalah, the Ashkenazic Kabbalah and the Sephardic Kabbalah, that grew and blossomed parallel to each other, he sort of is the bridge between these two worlds. He's going to unite a lot of the themes, clarify a lot of the ideals and the concept and the precepts and the tenets of Kabbalah and create almost a, a uniform way of thinking in this subject, the subject of Jewish mysticism. At the age of eight, his father Shlomo dies and his family moves to Cairo to Egypt, to go live with their uncle. His name was Rabbi Francis, Rabbi Mordechai Francis. And he had an important position in Egypt. He was a customs inspector and a tax farmer. He would pay the government a certain lump sum, and then he would have the right to oversee import-export. He would charge merchants for the merchandise that they wanted to bring and trade. And now we have this young boy, the uh, Rabbi Luria, and he's in Egypt. And in Egypt, he starts to study Torah under some of the great names of Jewish scholarship from the time. So the Radvaz that we mentioned earlier, he studies under his tutelage. And he also studies under Rabbi Betzalel Ashkenazi, who's the author of the book Shita Mikubetzes. Shita Mikubetzes is a compilation of insights on the Talmud. It appears in many tractates of Talmud, and he becomes his disciple. And at a very young age, it's evident to all that he's a wunderkind. He's a tremendous prodigy, and he becomes a great sage at a very young age. And we see his scholarship, not only what he became eventually famous for, which is Kabbalah, the Zohar, understanding Jewish mysticism and explaining it in, in new ways that weren't done prior, but even in matters of what's called the revealed Torah, the Torah that's available for everyone, the Torah that is not esoteric and arcane, he became a great sage even there, even in Egypt, as a young man. Uh, he, in fact, partnered 
with Rabbi Betzal Ashkenazi to write a volume of Shittim Kubetzes on the book of Zvachim. And he's mentioned by his contemporaries, including Rabbi Yosef Cairo, the, one of the greatest uh, halachic authorities of all time. Uh, he's mentioned in uh, halachic rulings in areas that have nothing to do with Kabbalah. But of course, his major contributions to scholarship are in the areas of Kabbalah. Now, it's interesting. He was not someone, at least in the earlier parts of his, uh, in the earlier times of his life, who divested himself completely from the world. At the age of 15, he marries his cousin, his uncle's daughter. And at the age of 20, he actually goes into business and became quite wealthy. And in fact, when they discover the Cairo Geniza, in the Ben Ezra Shul in, in Cairo, they found a treasure trove of documents. They actually found bills of sale, receipts that are written by Rabbi Isaac Luria by the Arizal. So he had some sort of job, some sort of career. As he was studying and becoming a great Torah scholar, he managed to juggle a business alongside his incredible study regiment. Uh, and even after he moves to Israel, as we'll see in a little bit, he's moved to Israel, it seems like for various times of his life, sporadically, he would again engage in commerce. Now, in his 20s, he decides to dedicate himself entirely to Torah study, but specifically to the study of Kabbalah and the Zohar and its related works. The story is told that he was praying in a synagogue in Egypt, in Cairo, and he met a Murano merchant. Remember, this is right after, or relatively soon after, the tremendous upheaval that was brought about by the Inquisition and the Christians in Spain and Portugal. And there's many Jews who became what's called conversos, Moranos, people who on the surface adopted Christianity, but really tried to harbor belief in Judaism and try to practice as best they could in secret. Many of those Jews eventually joined other communities, but many of them were hamstrung by the fact that they were totally ignorant. And they were very sincere, but they didn't really know anything about anything about Judaism. So there was this Murano who was praying next to Rabbi Luria. And really sees he's not holding a book, a siddur, he's not holding a prayer book, he's holding up some other Hebrew book. And he peeks over and he sees this is a book of Kabbalah that has incredibly deep secrets. So after the prayer is over, he rushes over to this merchant and he asks him, where do you get this book from? He says, listen, I'm a, I'm a Murano. I don't really know how to read Hebrew. I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to study. But I go to shul and I don't want to be the only one that holding a book. So several years ago, I found this book. I don't know. I can't read it, but I don't want, I want to hold a book. And that's what I do because I can't pray anyhow in a normal way. So the Arizal tells him, well, would you sell me the book? I'll, I'll pay you whatever it is that you want. And you could use the proceeds to buy a sitter, to buy a prayer book. I'll get you a sitter. I'll get you a prayer book. What, are you, what difference does it make? He says, well, I'm not going to sell it to you. I, I like it. But your father-in-law is the tax collector. And I'm a merchant. If you can arrange a deal that he'll forego the taxes, the duties, the customs on my goods, I'll give you the book. And Darizal managed to make that deal, make that exchange, and get the book. And he began spending years fasting, praying, 
studying intensely, engaging in self-denial of physical pleasures, trying to understand the Kabbalah, trying to understand the Zohar, trying to understand this book. And amid his intense study, he began having visions and dreams where he would be apprised of his understanding of given teachings. He would be told from heaven, well, this thing you didn't get quite right, this thing you got right. And for some of the things that he tried to ponder, he was told, no, no, you're not, you're not investing enough effort in it. You have to go even deeper. And he made a decision to go in full time, to drop his business and immerse himself totally in the study of Kabbalah, to leave his wife, to leave his children, to leave his life behind, and to invest himself, immerse himself, submerge himself completely in the study of Kabbalah. And he moved to a small, isolated cottage on the banks of the Nile River. And he spent there six years in total solitude, seclusion, and he would submerge himself in the study of Kabbalah, in prayer, in meditation. He would visit his family only for Shabbos. When he was there, he would speak only to his wife, only very sparingly, only the words that were absolutely necessary, and only in Hebrew. And he began making discoveries of the deepest secrets of the Torah and the Kabbalah on a dizzying pace. So, for example, we're told each night when he would go to sleep, his soul, as we know, the soul leaves the body when you go to sleep, or at least partially leaves the body. His soul would be elevated to heaven, and he would be fully cognizant of what he experienced. And they would tell him, okay, you're in heaven now. Which academy do you want to go study at? Do you want to go to the Academy of Rabbi Akiva? Do you want to go to the Academy of Rabbi Shimon Bar-Chai Rashbi, the author of the Zohar? Do you want to go to the Academy of Rabbi Eliezer? Which one do you want to go to? And he, every night he would choose a different one. He would go there. He would ask them questions. They give matches. They give him revelations of the deepest secrets of the hidden Torah, the Zohar, the Kabbalah, he would be frequented by Elijah the prophet, and he is beginning to study to become a receptacle of, of Torah that was never revealed in this world, or at least at this pace, at this scale, and certainly not at that time. So just to get a little sense of what Lurianic uh, Kabbalah is about, I pulled a uh, quote here from Beryl Wine, who is the noted uh, Jewish historian, and he kind of tries to give a summary of what Luriana Kabbalah is about. A lot of the themes that he introduced became so mainstream and so self-understood and axiomatic that it's hard for us to imagine a world where people didn't always think about those things. That's, of course, due to his influence. So I'm going to read a quote here. The Arizal, Rabbi Yitzchak, introduced a new theory and form of Kabbalah that swept the Jewish world and which would become the normative form of Kabbalah for the next four centuries. Known as the Kabbalah of the Ari, or as Lurianic Kabbalah, this presentation emphasized the concept of God's seeming self-limitation, the idea of tzimtzum, if you've heard of that idea. God constricts himself, allowing free will and evil to freely coexist. That's one idea. Of the release of sparks, nitsotsos, of spirituality from the broken vessels, of creation, of the necessity to collect these sparks 
and somehow redeem them and have the doctrine of the necessary spiritual redemption of the world, man and every soul. These ideas are very, very common, especially in the Hasidic world. The Lurianic Kabbalah placed great emphasis on the ideas of reincarnation, imminent messianism, spiritual revelations bordering on prophecy, and the inherent vast powers of holy men. Through the teaching and writings of Rabbi Chaim Vital, the main disciple of the Ari, these features of Kabbalah became known worldwide and popular. The principle of the, the I'm sorry, the disciples of the Ari saw the real world, quote unquote, as being only a form of a dress, of a garment covering the truly real, spiritual, Kabbalistic world that lay underneath. Through their eyes, the Jewish exile and sufferings took on new and paradoxically positive meanings. And there was an intensification of emphasis on God's interdependence with Israel in fulfilling the Jewish role in history, thereby eventually producing the ultimate redemption of all of mankind and, so to speak, of God himself. These ideas would have great influence in later Jewish life and are part of the maelstrom of ideas that swirl about in Jewish life today. It was through the Arizal and his disciples that Kabbalah finally became established as normative and dominant in Jewish life. In 1570, the Arizal is 36. He's still in Egypt. He makes a decision to travel to Tzfat, to move to Israel with his family. Why he did it is different reasons given. Some suggest that he went there to study under the tutelage of the Ramak, the greatest, or was considered the greatest Kabbalist of the time, Rabbi Moshe Cordovero was living in Tzfat, and he went to study, according to some opinions, Arizal went to study under his guidance. Alternatively, it was because he was informed from heaven that his Kabbalah that he had discovered and was continually discovering in Egypt, he needed to teach it to the world. And there was a student in Tzfat, Rabbi Chaim Vital, who would end up being his right-hand man and his chosen successor. And he was the one who would oversee the new Kabbalistic principles that he revealed, and he would be the one perpetuated to the next generation. He was told from heaven, you have to go to Tzfat to go teach the Kabbalah to the next generation. By the time the Arizal arrived in Tzfat, it was already a city of towering scholars and sages both sages of the revealed Torah and of the hidden Torah, and of course, a lot of crossover. So for example, Rabbi Yosef Cairo, uh, he's known for his, primarily for his three major works, the Bet Yosef, which is an encyclopedic work of Halacha, the Kesef Mishneh, which is a primary commentary on the Rambam's Halachic work, and of course, the Shulchan Arach, the Code of Jewish Law. So these are all great works of Halacha, revealed Torah. But he was also a giant of Kabbalah. For example, in the Shulchan Aruch itself, he quotes the Zohar, a Kabbalistic book. And a lesser-known work of Rabbi Cairo is the Magid Meisharim, which is a work of Kabbalah organized as a diary wherein he details the nightly study sessions with a dedicated angel, a Magid. He would have every night, an angel would come and teach him all these interesting ideas of Kabbalah, and he would write it down. At this night, this day of the year, I got this visitation, and this is what he told me. So this kind of demonstrates that the atmosphere, the milieu of the time, was already heavily steeped in Kabbalah. 
And the greatest Kabbalistic master in Sfat was Rabbi Moshe Cordovero. Uh, he wrote many great works on Kabbalah. He wrote the Or Yakar, which is a monumental commentary on the Zohar. He wrote a book called Tomer Devora, which is like a Kabbalistic Musser work. And he wrote the Sefer HaPardes, what's known for the full name is Pardes Rimonim, which means an orchard of pomegranates, which is a systematization of Kabbalah according to topic. And it actually parallels the topics covered by Maimonides in his Guide to the Perplexed. You have a the, the Rambam, his rational take on the principles of Jewish philosophy, and chapter by chapter, topic by topic, those same ideas are covered in the Pardis Rimonim by Rabbi Moshe Cordovero in the vocabulary of Kabbalah. This revolutionary Kabbalistic teacher and systematizer, he also had a very famous brother-in-law who was a Kabbalist, who also lived in Tzfat. His name was Rabbi Shlomo Alkabitz. He is the author of the L'Chadodi prayer that is sung the world over on Friday nights in the synagogue. So the Rizal travels to Tzfat. Again, perhaps to study under the Ramak, perhaps to teach Torah to the next generation. But when he arrives, the Ramak has already passed away. And in fact, the story is told, or at least one tradition is, that on the day that he arrives in Sfat, that's the very same day as Rabbi Moshe Cordovero's funeral. And the story goes on to say that he, as he joins the, f- the funeral procession, he sees a pillar of fire following the procession, which apparently the Zohar describes as a sign to the individual who sees it, that he is meant to inherit the role of leadership of the departed person. There's a very famous eulogy that the Arizal gives to Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, and the eulogy orients around a verse in Deuteronomy, in chapter 21, verse 22. The verse seems to be talking about someone who committed a sin of capital crime, that that person gets hung on a tree. There are certain crimes that if someone commits them and is found guilty in a Jewish court of law and is executed, they are actually hung for a short period of time on a tree. So the verse says, When there will be in a man a sin worthy of judgment of death, and he is killed, you should hang him upon a tree. That's what the verse says. This was the subject matter of the Arizal's eulogy of the Ramak. How so? So he read the verse like this. The word chet, seemingly, most common interpretation is that it means a sin. But he proved that the word chet means a lacking, which is why sin is a lacking. But he, the way he read it, when, it, when there shall be in a man a lacking of a judgment of death. There's no reason why they should die. They're so righteous. They don't. They haven't sinned. They, they, there's really no reason why they should die. Yet, vihumas, and they die. Vitalisa osa al The word talisa means to hang, but also means to attribute it. You should attribute it to the tree, i.e., attribute it to the sin of Adam. Adam, by his consumption of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, condemned all of humanity to live a life of mortality. 
And therefore, the only reason why the Ramak died says the Arizal. It's only because humans are all condemned to die. That's the only reason why he died. We have to attribute his death to the tree. And though he arrived just in time to be the successor of the Ramak as the authority of Kabbalah in Sfat, his influence would quickly eclipse that of his predecessor. Now, it's interesting. The Arizal arrived in Sfat in the year 1570. He's already a giant in every discipline of Torah, revealed Torah, hidden Torah, and a small circle of students coalesced around him to study under his guidance. Less than two years later, the Arizal passed away at the age of 38. But over the course of that Annus Mirabilis, Jewish history was changed forever due to these incredible innovations of Kabbalah that he revealed to his students. Now, before we get into some of the content of the Kabbalah and the shift that happened in Kabbalah worldwide after the Arizal, I want to share some of the takes of his personal character and ability. So someone, for example, asked him, why don't you write a book? You're teaching all these things about Kabbalah. Organize it in a book. And he answered, I'm discovering Torah secrets faster than I can say them and certainly faster than I can write them. And he even used Kabbalistic lingo. He says, I have to find a small little pipe to be able to share these ideas because they're coming so fast, I can't possibly sit down and write it and write them all. Uh, the story goes once that he was, he was sleeping and he was murmuring in his sleep. And all students knew whenever he's sleeping, he's going up to heaven to study Torah. So one of the students leaned in to hear what is the great sage, the Arizal, what is he murmuring in his sleep? And the Arizal wakes up. And he, of course, it's a little bit uncomfortable, but he says to him, I, I, I was just trying to listen to hear what you, were, what you were saying. And he says to him like this, if I were to talk nonstop for 80 years, I couldn't finish telling you what I just learned. There's so much and it's all interconnected. It would take me more than 80 years speaking nonstop to convey what I have discovered. Now, Rabbi Chaim Vital is a very central character to understanding the Arizal because he is the chosen successor of the Arizal and he's the only one that the Arizal allowed to publish his teachings. And therefore, he's a very primary source in understanding the character, the nature, the ability, the powers of the Arizal. And the book that he eventually wrote is called Eitz Chaim. And in the introduction, he tells us a little bit about the character of the Arizal. And he begins his telling by saying that if I wasn't worried about people's skepticism and disbelief, I would tell over all the stories that I personally witnessed with my own two eyes about the Arizal, stories that haven't happened to Jewish sages since the times of the great sages of the Mishnah, since the times of Rabbi Shem Baruchai. And then he says, okay, I'll give you a little bit, a little insight into his ability. And he starts like this. I want to read this. This is directly taken from the introduction of the Eitz Chaim. So he begins that since the time of the Ramban, so 300 and some odd years prior, there was no one like the Arizal to understand this wisdom, the wisdom of Kabbalah, truthfully. Because he knew all Mishnah and Talmud and Agarim in, in Midrash 
in every one, in every area of Torah, he can explain with many different facets in the pardes, in the various levels and dimensions of Jewish learning. But he was also an expert in Mycebratius, the account of creation, the account of the chariot. He was able to understand using Torah what birds were chirping to each other, what trees were saying as were as they were swaying, what grasses were saying as they were swaying. And this idea, of course, the Kabbalistic idea that everything physical has some sort of spiritual source, spiritual spark. And he was able to tap into the spiritual sparks of trees and grasses and or grass and and birds, etc. Uh, he was also, which I found this very interesting, he was able to understand the flickerings of the candles. I don't even know what that means. He was able to converse with angels. He would speak to spirits. He was able to talk to souls. He was able to understand a person's character by smelling their clothing. Just like it's, we're told about Isaac, that Isaac, uh, when Jacob walks in, he smells something really special about it. There's some sort of spiritual scent that he had. And it gets even more intense in just a little bit. He was able to take the soul out of someone else's body while that person was still alive and talk to it and would then put it back. He would see the souls when they left the body. He was able to see the souls hovering over graves and when they went up to heaven. He was able to talk with the souls of the righteous when they were in heaven. And they would reveal to him the wisdom of Torah. He was also an, an expert in what is known as metapostopy, which is essentially reading someone's forehead and looking at the etchings on their hand and knowing everything about them. He was able to interpret dreams correctly. He was able to know a person's spiritual origin he was able to know who had your soul in the last go-round. He would look at someone, to, he would know what he's thinking, what he's dreaming, what verse he read when his soul went up to heaven the previous night, what is the root of his soul, what are his mitzvahs that he did, his merits that he did, what are the sins that he did. And he would be able to tailor for every individual what exactly they need to do to perfect their soul. He was also able to isolate what portion of Adam did every soul emanate from. This is, again, a Kabbalistic idea that Adam was an amalgamation of all souls, and then they were all diced up. So Adam is only one human, but really is an amalgam of all humanity. And each human has a little sliver of of Adam's soul. Well, which part of Adam did you get? I don't know. Darizal, apparently, knew. He was able to strike people with blindness, but he was also someone of tremendous humility, fear of heaven, love of God, fear of sin, someone who embodied all good character and good deeds, and someone who knew all of wisdom. And this is what he says, this is this is just the small things, and there's so much more that I can't even tell you about. Apparently, it was a common pastime. The Arizal and his students they would walk around northern Israel. We know when the Romans came to Israel, they, the hub of, of Jewish life was always Jerusalem and the central Israel, essentially. But they banned Jews from living in many parts. They destroyed many towns. A lot, of, a lot of the Jews and the sages went up north. And a lot of them are buried there. He would walk with his students around northern Israel 
and would point to places, okay, here this great sage is buried, and here that great sage. He was able to sense, he had some sort of ability to sense which great sage was buried where. A lot of the grave sites that we actually have today, they stem from the Arizal's uh, discovery of those uh, sites. Another crazy story, uh, Rabbi Chaim Vital, he was his student, of course, and he was he came to teach him, but apparently he wasn't understanding the Kabbalah sufficiently well. So he took him to Tiberias, which is very close to Tzvat, and they went on a ship, on a boat, in the lake, the lake, the, the lake of Kinneret. And the Talmud says that after Miriam died, Miriam the sister of Moshe died, Moshe and Aaron died, there was, of course, there was no water because the spring that existed that gave water to the Jewish people in her merit, it stopped, it stopped operating. And the Talmud says that actually it traveled, the spring traveled to Israel and buried itself somewhere in the Kinneret. So the Arizal takes a student, Rabbi Chaim Vital, they go on a ship or a boat with a cup. They travel to a specific point in the Kinneret. He takes a scoop of water and he gives it to his student. And he tells him, this is where the Be'er Miriam, the, the spring of Miriam is buried. Drink it, you both understand all Torah. And he, he drank the water, and all the portals of wisdom were opened before him. I heard that story from my grandfather, and then he adds, I went to Tveria, to Tiberias, and I asked everyone I knew, does anyone know where exactly in the Kinneret I could find the Be'er Miriam, and no one seemed to know. And then my father was in town, was in Houston, uh, over the holidays, over Sukkot, and I told him the story. He says, yes, I remember when I was a child going with my father, we would go during the break in the semester in the yeshiva cycle, we would go to, to – and I remember him asking people, where is this Be'er Miriam? Where is this spring of Miriam? Now, there's some other stories here I think we have to share because they're so uh, they're so illuminating what kind of otherworldly character we're dealing with. So another episode here is told there was Rabbi Alshech, who was one of the sages in Sfat, who was not a Kabbalist. And in fact, they, te- they say that the Arizal refused to teach him Kabbalah. He said to him, according to what your soul needs, it's not Kabbalah. And he said, I want to I study Kabbalah. And he tried to study. He would always fall asleep. Wasn't able, he wasn't, he wasn't, a, wasn't appropriate for him. But he was, of course, a great sage. And we have a great commentary from the Alshech on the Torah. But he was giving a lecture in one of the synagogues, on Shabbos, and the Shabbos that we read in the middle of Genesis, the episode of Jacob and his father-in-law Laban. And they have a business arrangement where Jacob watches the animals and he gets a certain portion uh, of, of the new babies born to the sheep. And the Torah says that, of course, Laban was very dishonest and he changed the deal a hundred times. He wasn't honest. And he had a hundred different ways that he tried to cheat and trick his son-in-law Jacob. So what was the subject of the lecture? The subject of the lecture, we're going to go through each one of the hundred deceptions of Laban. Somehow he managed to figure out what those hundred were and that was the subject of the lecture. And the Arizal was sitting there and he was participating. And the whole time... During this lecture, he's smiling. And then, suddenly, he gets up and he walks out. 
And all the students who are watching him for every little twitch of his face, they afterwards they run up to him and say, well, what happened? Why were you smiling in the middle, middle of the lecture? And why did you suddenly get up and get out? So he says, we were in the room listening to the lecture, but you know who else was in the room? Laban, with a group of angels. A group of angels pulled him out from heaven and forced him to listen. And every time the, the rabbi, Rabbi Alshech, Every time he would delineate another one of the deceptions, Laban would have to nod himself. Yes, that's true. That's true. I did that. I did that. And that's why I was smiling. But then the rabbi, he got a little bit too excited with his brilliance and genius. He had a little shred of pride. The angels left. They said, okay, if there's pride, we're out. But they left Laban there. I don't want to be in the room with Laban, so that's why I left. That's what he that, that that's that's a story that he that he told. And it's it's remarkable. And I only I I only selected uh, a small sampling of these stories. Um, but he clearly had some prophetic ability. So for example, this is one story, there's many uh sim- similar stories. There was a young man who came to visit him and Told him, well, I'm leaving Israel. I'm going to Europe. I'm going out of town. I want I want you to tell me what's going to happen to me. So he says, I'll tell you what's going to happen to you. You're going to go to a certain place, and you're going to marry a very beautiful woman, and you're going to be married to her for six months, and then she's going to die. And then when she dies, she's going to give you, and the inheritance that you're going to get from her is six hundred gold pieces. But why? Because in a previous incarnation, in a previous iteration of your life, you and that soul of that woman were friends. But for six months, that soul tormented you and stole 600 gold coins for you, from you. And therefore, to make things equal, you're going to marry her and she's going to be a beautiful wife for six months and she'll rectify what the torture that that, that, that soul did to you in the previous lifetime and they're going to pay up the debt, and after six months, she's going to die, and everyone's going to achieve their completion. And that, indeed, is what happened. Uh, there's another downright scary story that is actually quoted by the Maharam Chagiz, who's a very reputable source. And he says there was a Marano from Portugal who ended up in the city of Tzfat. And he heard a lecture and the lecture was regarding the lechem haponim, the showbread, in the temple, the showbread. And amidst this lecture, the rabbi is describing this bread that was offered in the temple. And he says, oh, it's so bad. Nowadays, due to our many sins, we have nothing comparable to the showbreads to offer God. That's what he said in his speech. So this simpleton, this ignorant person, but very sincere person, goes over to his wife and says, I heard a lecture about the lechem upon about the showbread, and it's so sad no one's doing it, we're going to do it. So he tells her, I want you to go, we're going to take the most finely sifted flour like they did in the temple, I want you to bake me two big breads, and we're going to go offer it to God. So she does it. She bakes these two breads, and he brings it on Friday afternoon to the synagogue. The synagogue is vacant, and he starts praying to God. Please accept my offering, eat this food. And he's crying very innocently, very sincerely. 
and he places the two breads at the foot of the Aron Kodesh of the Ark. That night, he comes to Shul, and he finds that the bread is gone. But what actually happened was, is that the Shamash, the Sexton, the person in charge of organizing the Shul, he walked into Shul to finish his preparations for Shabbos, and he sees two delicious breads, and he says, okay, someone left it here, doesn't think twice about it, and takes and goes and eats it. But this Murano, this ignorant simpleton, he, he can't believe it. He offered it to God, and God ate it. Wow! He runs home, he says, you won't believe what happened! The Almighty accepted our offering! And, okay, we're not going to miss a week. And every week, the same thing happens. He tells his wife, so the wife does it, and he brings it, and he prays to God and cries to God, please accept it again this week. And he places it there before him, and, and the shamish, the god, the gabai, the sexton just comes, and every week he says, okay, more food for me. And he just eats it himself. Fine. That's what happened until one Friday afternoon, the rabbi of the synagogue was preparing for a grand lecture that he was scheduled to give the following day. And he was in shul late Friday afternoon, and this Morano walks in with his two breads. And he doesn't notice the rabbi, so he walks over to the Aron Kodesh, he places it on the floor, he starts praying, eat my food. The rabbi freaks out. What are you, crazy? God's not eating your food? God's not physical? And he starts to lambast him and scream at him. And he says to him, you know what actually happened? You think that the Almighty is eating your food? What are you, crazy? It's just the Gabbai. And a middle of their discussion, and he's screaming at him. The Gabbai shows up, the, the Sexton shows up, and he goes and he takes the food like he's been anticipating now every week. And, of course, this Morano starts crying, and he's so sad. How did I make something? How did I make such a mistake? It's like idolatry, the rabbi tells him. In the middle of this whole meeting, a messenger walks in and he says, I'm here as per the direction of the Arizal. And he says to them, I'm telling you in the name of the Arizal that tomorrow at the time that you're slated to give your speech, you're not going to be given a speech, you're going to die. Why? Because in heaven they have determined that what you have done to this poor soul is totally unforgivable. Forgivable. There's no way to undo this. You will die tomorrow. Go home. Get your affairs in order. Tomorrow you're going to die. Then this rabbi runs to the Arizal to find out what happened. What did he do? And the Arizal tells him, the reason why you're being punished is because you disrupted something that was so enjoyable to God that since the times of the temple, there was nothing as enjoyable to God than this innocent, sincere offering by this totally ignorant Murano. And therefore, there's no way, your, your verdict was sealed, there's no way to undo it, there's no possible solution tomorrow, you're going to die. And indeed, the next day, at the time that he was allotted, they were scheduled to give a speech, he died. There's another crazy story here that uh, I actually um, – the the source of this story is a book called Shifchei Ha'ari, which means the, 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 the praises of the Ari. And it's uh, very much a hagiographical work. So I'm not necessarily saying this story is reliable historically, uh, but certainly it does – it is indicative of the attitudes that are prevalent – 
and certainly were prevalent about the Arizal and his students. And the story is told about a woman who had uh, a being, some sort of spirit, occupying her. And this spirit, known in Yiddish as a dibuk, is causing her tremendous pain. And I'm shortening the story a little bit because it is quite long. And they immediately try to get someone to help. This is in the city of Tzfat. And they call over Rab Chaim Vital as a messenger of the Arizal. And he comes there and the Arizal prepares him. This is what you need to do to get that spirit dislodged, to exorcise this spirit from this poor woman who is suffering gravely. So Rab Chaim Vital starts having a conversation with the spirit. And he says, well, what, what, what did you do so wrong that you don't have a place to settle down? Like, why are you ending up in this woman's body? And he says, well, I was a sinner in my lifetime, and I committed adultery, and I bred bastards. And now for 25 years, I've been punished in a terrible way, and I don't have any respite. There's three angels that are always following me at every place that I go, and they're always hitting me and punishing me. And Reb Chaim Vital says, wait a minute, the Talmud says quite clearly that the maximum length of someone's punishment in, in hell and purgatory is only 12 months. So this is 25 years, what happened to you? So the spirit responds to him, says, no, you don't get it. He says, to go to Gehenna, to go to purgatory, that's a good place to go because there they cleanse your soul. And for 12 months, they cleanse and they whiten and they power wash your soul to remove any blemishes to it, to prepare it for heaven. But I have a different situation. I, I, my soul is beyond repair or it needs to be repaired in a much different way and therefore it's taking much longer. And then he tells his whole backstory, how he died. He was in a ship, and the ship sunk, and he didn't have time to say vidui, to confess before he died, as is appropriate for Jews. And then they buried him, and then right after they buried him, after all the Jews left, a bunch of angels came with whips of fire. Pretty wild stuff. The angels came with whips of fire, and they smashed into his grave, and they pulled him out. They took him with a slingshot and sent him hundreds of miles away, and they brought him to the entrance of Gehenna. And in the air, he sees thousands or tens of thousands of souls of wicked people who are being punished in Gehenna, and all those souls are screaming at him, we don't want you here, you're too wicked even for us, you have no place here, and he ends up going from place to place and having no respite. And eventually, he ends up in this woman. That's a, a shortened version, a bridged version of this whole story. Well, why are you in this woman? What did she do wrong? So says the spirit to Rabbi Chaim Vital, well, she doesn't believe in many of the important principles of Torah. She doesn't believe in the Exodus. She doesn't believe uh, in the Mount Sinai experience. She doesn't believe in, uh, in the uh, splitting of the sea. And eventually the story goes on to say that uh, Rabbi Hamital asked the woman, do you believe in these things? She does. She promises that she does. And he exorcises this soul. And beforehand, the soul tells him, well, how long do you need to be here before you're finally freed? He says, well, I can only be freed and my suffering can only end once those bastards that I have, I have fathered, once they die. As long as they're in the world, I'm going to suffer this fate.
that's one of the stories that we read, which is, again, there's, there's a whole bunch of them over here. I just selected one because it is indicative of this new focus on, on the soul, where it comes from, where is it going to, what happens to it, and what happens to us after we die, and uh, all kinds of esoteric, eschatological ideas that became very common, not only amongst the sages, but amongst the, the, the people. And I think that one of the most significant changes that happened uh, during this time is this, this focus change. Previously, Kabbalah existed, but it was studied with small groups, teacher to student. It's almost invisible to anyone who's not partaking in it. They don't even know that it exists. There's, no, there's many books uh, that are only passed on from one person to another person. Uh, there's traditions that are transmitted orally, but it's very hush. And during this time period, there's a remarkable shift in the attitude towards the study of Kabbalah. And there's several reasons given to, that, to, uh, to why that happened. For one, the Arizal himself said that there's something called Yeridat Hadorot, which means like degradation of generations with each successive generation they are less spiritually acute, and therefore things have to adapt to that generation. And so, for example, Rabbi Chaim Vital writes, he says, yes, of course, in yesteryear, in the times of the Talmud, people didn't study it publicly, and it was very secret, and no one was allowed to reveal it. All that was true in those generations. But in these generations... Mitzvah It is a mitzvah, and it's great joy before God that this wisdom should be revealed. Why? Because in its merit, the Messiah will come. And that's another idea that we see that is a different generation, different time. It, it, different times call for different measures. And by the way, that I, that attitude was not limited to the Arizal. The Ramak himself wrote that it's a mistake to ignore Kabbalah. The Ramchal who came later. They're going to Vilna. All of them stressed that the arrival of the Messiah and this transformation that we're waiting for hinges on the study of Kabbalah. Rabbi Chaim Vital, again, the student of the Arizal, he went a little bit further. He said, if people refrain from the study of Kabbalah, they're akin to bodies lacking a soul. Kabbalah, in his definition, is like the soul of Torah. The revealed Torah is like the body, just like your body is revealed, but your soul is hidden. The soul of the Torah is the Kabbalah. Well, if someone says, I'm not going to study the soul, in essence, they're opting to give primacy to their body in lieu of their soul. And he goes on to say very harshly that someone who doesn't study Kabbalah loses their portion, they only have a very low level of Olam because they're subsisting with the lower levels of Torah and ignoring the higher realms of Torah. Therefore, their reward is limited to the lower levels of Olam Abba. So it's an interesting shift that happens quite dramatically where previously Kabbalah was like, no, no, you have to hide it, you can't share it, you can't spread it, you can't disseminate it. And now, no, no, it's kind of the opposite. You have to study. If you don't study, you're making a great mistake. But even, and this is an important point to stress, even during those times, everyone seems to be in agreement that study of Kabbalah has to be undertaken with certain prerequisites. There has to be intense study of general principles of Torah and assiduous performance of mitzvot. There has to be fear of sin. Someone has to be 
a worthy receptacle of, of Kabbalah before they study it, but they shouldn't ignore it. And what emerges from this great blossoming explosion of Kabbalah brought about by the Arizal is what's known as the Kisve Ha'ari, which means literally the writings of the Ari, which is kind of ironic given that he didn't write almost anything uh, that was by design. Initially, he wanted to teach only his students, and he didn't want the students writing it down. He didn't want the students disseminating it to other people. And after his passing, Rabbi Chaim Vital, his, his right-hand man, tried to enforce that it shouldn't be spread, but some of the students t- took notes surreptitiously and went to Europe and started spreading notebooks on the Kabbalah of the Arizal, and then some of them took their own works of Kabbalah and attributed it to the what they studied from their teacher. Some of them contradicted each other, and therefore, Rabbi Vital says, okay, if it's out of the box, if it has to be disseminated to the world on this grand scale, I'm going to do it myself, and I'm going to do it well. And he ends up writing what's known as the Eitz Chaim. It has other names. It's called the Shemona Sha'arim. Uh, there are many different iterations of the books that he wrote, but in essence, he was the one through which we got the certified, approved, authoritative version of the Kabbalah of the Arizal. It became incredibly popular. It spread and is essentially at the heart of a lot of the Judaism that follows. Uh, just quickly, what uh, what is what are these books? So, uh, one, uh, in one iteration, it's called the Shmona Sha'arim, which means the eight gates broken down to eight portions. What are these eight sections? So, one of them is the Shar HaAkdamos, the general structure, architecture of the world according to Kabbalah. Sha'ar Ma'amore Rashbi, uh, commentary on the Zohar, a commentary, Kabbalistic commentary on various teachings in the Talmud, a commentary on the Tanakh, Shar HaKavanos, the gate of Kavano, which means meditation or intention, Shar Mitzvos, Kabbalistic takes on Mitzvos, on commandments of the Torah, Shar Ruach HaKodesh, the gate of the Holy Spirit, Shar HaGilgulim, which means the gate of reincarnation. Collectively, the cold eights Chaim and various different versions were printed. At the end of this book, the Eitz Chaim, in the Shahar Dildulim, there is a narrative of the deathbed of the Arizal. And the students came in. He was only 38 years old. He had only been with them for a little more than a year. And they were worried. We didn't get it all. We got tons. We got an incredible amount. But we didn't get, we didn't get it all. What, what's going to be with us? And he tells them, if you are righteous, if you are meritorious, I will appear to you and I will teach you whatever it is that I have not taught you. And some have speculated that indeed Kabbalah continued to flourish even after the passing of the Arizal because afterwards the development and the dissemination and the proliferation and the new discoveries of Kabbalah did not stop. It was built upon the discoveries and the innovations and the new insights of the Arizal. We have three transformative figures that each one in their own way added 
and clarified more of the Kabbalah that already began much earlier. We have the Zohar, the printing of the Zohar, we have the Arizal, and we have these three giants, the Ramchal, Rabbi Moshchaim Lutzato, in his style, the Gona Vilna, and in his way of presenting the Kabbalah, and finally, of course, the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, Kabbalah continued to flourish, continued to influence Jewish thought, and even halacha in far-reaching ways. And please, God, we'll hopefully do another episode on what happened to Kabbalah after the Arizal.